You may think that you've had the world's strongest coffee, but unless you've had the electric chair blend from Reaper's Brew, well then my friend, you have not had the world's strongest coffee. There have been days where I needed the energy and motivation to get going, whether it was to work on my podcast or just be productive in general, and Reaper's Brew Coffee definitely did wonders for me. To get some Reaper's Brew Coffee for yourself, just go to reapersbrew.com and receive 10% off of your first order when you enter in the coupon code UNKNOWNPOD. Again, visit reapersbrew.com and enter in the coupon code UNKNOWNPOD at checkout for 10% off of your first order. Hi guys, my name is Miles and I wanted to tell you about my true crime podcast, Forensic Miles. My co-host Sean and I investigate the cases in every episode of Forensic Files. You've seen the show, you know the crime, but is there more to the story? Let's find out. Check us out on Instagram at Forensic Miles, Miles with a Y, and listen to us wherever you listen to podcasts. See you there. Jessica Easterly Durning had finally had enough abuse from her husband, Justin, and was ready to leave him. On August 12, 2019, she talked with her friend Maria and made plans for Maria to come get her the following day. When Maria didn't hear from Jessica the following day, she assumed that Jessica had changed her mind. However, she was unable to get a hold of her friend. The day after that, Justin sent a message to Maria from Jessica's Facebook account asking if she had heard from Jessica, that he had not seen her since noon that day. While Justin was apprehensive to contact police to report his wife missing, Maria immediately took action herself, contacting police as well as Jessica's family. The following week, on August 22nd, Jessica's body was discovered just two and a half blocks from her home, badly decomposed. While she had suffered great bodily injury, the coroner to this day has her death listed as undetermined. What happened to Jessica Easterly? Did Justin murder her in a rage after finding out she intended to leave him? And why haven't authorities been taking Jessica's case seriously? This is episode 19 of the Still Unknown podcast, the death of Jessica Easterly. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Still Unknown podcast, a podcast about unsolved murders, disappearances, unexplained deaths, and other unsolved mysteries. I am Joe Schwartz, the host of this podcast. In this episode, I will be talking about the unsolved death of Jessica Easterly. I only say death because officially it is considered undetermined at this point, but let's face it, in all likelihood, I am talking about a homicide here. I became aware of this case when I came across an account on Twitter that is run by Jessica's sister, Audrey, where she has been very outspoken about getting justice in Jessica's case. And I want to acknowledge up top here that this is the first case I've covered on the podcast where I was very fortunate enough to be able to have direct contact with friends and family members of the victim. I could have read all the articles on this case but it can't compare to actually being able to learn about Jessica from those who knew her best. So I want to offer my thanks, my condolences, and my absolute support 
to every one of Jessica's family and friends I name in this episode. They are fighting hard for justice in her case, and I hope they will receive answers, and I'm happy to help them get the word out on Jessica's case. So now, let's dive into the case. Jessica Renee Easterly was born to Lloyd and Donna Easterly on August 17, 1976, at the Biloxi Hospital in Biloxi, Mississippi, just a short three-and-a-half-mile drive from where she would grow up in Diberville, Mississippi, which is north across the Back Bay. Lloyd and Donna would divorce around the time Jessica was six years old, at which point Donna would have primary custody of Jessica while Lloyd would have custody on weekends. Donna and Jessica would move into an apartment complex where many fond memories would be made. The complex had a pool, and one day soon after moving in, Jessica was sitting poolside after having had a birthday party. She was holding a balloon in one hand while she had two Cabbage Patch Kids dolls under her other arm. When another little girl who lived on the other side of the pool came outside, Jessica smiled and said hello to the girl. The girl, sensing Jessica's sweet friendliness, smiled back and remarked that she loved the dolls that Jessica was holding. Cabbage Patch Kids were the hottest toys on the market back in the early 1980s, so they were obviously going to be great conversation starters for any young child. The girl introduced herself as Jen, and from that day on, she and Jessica were inseparable. They had a natural connection in that they were two young girls each living with a recently divorced mother. In my communications with Jen for this episode, she recalled how even though at the time she attended public school while Jessica attended private school, the two girls did everything together. Every weekend was a sleepover at either Jen's home or Jessica's, or Lloyd's home if he had custody of Jessica that weekend. One Saturday morning, Jessica woke up with the chicken pox, Although she would look at it as a blessing because Jen's parents knew that she would get them herself, so the two girls ended up being able to quarantine together. They were both obsessed with the music of Madonna and Prince, and would spend their sleepovers coming up with dance routines to songs like Material Girl and Little Red Corvette. Jen recalled how fearless and confident Jessica truly was. They were both in the musical Oliver Twist together at school, and Jen said it was because of Jessica that she was able to get on stage herself. Eventually, Jen would have to move to Texas with her family, which devastated both girls. However, they managed to keep in contact with their parents letting them have phone dates every Saturday morning and would stay lifelong friends. When Jessica was still a child, her mother met a man named Rick Schmidt, and the two would marry. Not only did Jessica now have a new stepfather, but she suddenly had two new stepsisters named Audrey and Amanda. Having two new sisters definitely took some getting used to for Jessica, as she had been an only child up until that point. But as Amanda recalled, Jessica was never mean or spiteful about it. Audrey, who was a few years older than Jessica, recalled how quiet Jessica was around her, almost as if she didn't know what to make of her new big sister. Audrey's fashion choice was big 80s hair 
black lipstick, and torn up jeans. And while Jessica preferred the musical stylings of Madonna and Prince, Audrey would be in her room cranking Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. It wasn't until they were older, after Jessica graduated high school, that she and Audrey truly became close. As Audrey told me, she would spend many nights talking with Jessica about her quote-unquote loser, guy-liner, wannabe-a-rockstar boyfriend. And Jessica would have an ability to make you laugh, no matter how down you were feeling. Everyone I've talked to about Jessica mentioned that one of her biggest passions in life was reading. Her sister Amanda said, quote, she went through books like they were food. She wasn't big on nonfiction, but there wasn't a fiction genre she wouldn't read, end quote. She also loved fashion and design and giving makeovers to her friends, who would say that a makeover from Jessica was the perfect makeover, making a girl's night out memorable and special. Jessica graduated from Ocean Springs High School in 1994 and later attended the University of South Alabama, where she would receive an undergraduate degree with focused subjects in audiology and speech pathology. At some point around 2011, Jessica was invited out on a boat by her friend to meet her friend's husband. As Jessica herself later recalled on her wedding page, quote, I stepped aboard and saw the most handsome man I'd ever seen. I couldn't take my eyes off him. I caught him having the same problem, end quote. The man's name was Justin Durning, and he was the husband of Jessica's friend. Even though there was an attraction there, Jessica was not the kind of woman to swoop in on someone else's man. She would see them a couple more times, but eventually lost contact with her friend when she moved back to Ocean Springs. Then one day, about a year after initially meeting him, out of the blue, Jessica received a phone call from Justin. He and Jessica's old friend were now divorced, and Justin was in interested in connecting with Jessica because he had felt that same attraction in their first meeting. The two agreed to meet for a date, then another date, and then another, and soon fell in love. Justin had a daughter named Grace, whom Jessica would grow very close to and whom she absolutely adored and she would grow to treat Grace as her own daughter. One night, the three of them had gone out for dinner at Grace's favorite restaurant. Jessica noticed that Justin seemed fidgety and nervous the whole time, so she figured something was up. When they got home after dinner, it was a full moon out and a clear starlit sky. Jessica looked up at the night sky, struck by the beauty of it. When she looked down, Justin was down on one knee with a ring in his hand, asking Jessica to be his wife. She joyfully accepted, and the two kissed and held each other while crying tears of happiness. Jessica and Justin were married on February 25, 2015, at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Biloxi. The couple went with a nautical and beachy theme for the wedding, with the bridesmaids wearing navy blue dresses and the groom and groomsmen wearing navy blue button-down shirts with silver tie, and Jessica herself in a backless ivory satin dress, and everyone in flip-flops, either their own or ones that Jessica herself made through her new independent business she called Southern Heels NOLA, 
in which she used her interest in fashion and design to, to design flip-flops. The Facebook page she created for the business reads, quote, Customize flip-flops to your specifications. Heel height, ribbon color, adornment, bow. If you can think it, I can make it, and I guarantee my work, end quote. Jessica's friends and family were very happy for her that she had found love. However, it didn't take long before they started noticing that everything was not as wonderful as they thought. Her sister Audrey told me of a moment about two years after the wedding in which Justin made a highly inappropriate remark towards her. While she didn't say what the comment was or pertained to, she said it was more than enough for her to view Justin from that point on as a quote-unquote fucking disgusting perverted pig. Also, Jessica began confiding in her friend Maria that Justin was cruel and abusive towards her. The following is a text that Jessica sent to Maria. Hey, I need to talk to you about this weekend. I'm hiding in the bathroom right now so Justin doesn't hear me. We've been fighting. Like, fighting for the past three days about everything. He's threatening to kick me out, put me in jail. He's hit me. It's bad. He told me you guys can't come or it's going to be worse for me. Lo, I'm so sorry. I know it's last minute and I feel awful. I don't know what to do. I can recommend somewhere that's reasonable and nice, the, the Beyond Canal. We stay there a lot. We're used to. Lo, I'm scared. Jessica's childhood friend Jen, who had stayed in contact with Jessica into adulthood, recounted the last conversation the two of them ever had. She said that Jessica was in her usual bubbly self at that time. She actually sounded scripted and reserved. Jen also remembered that Jess had it on speakerphone, as if someone else could listen in and coach her how to respond to everything. Jen recalled that when she got off the phone, she said to her husband that she had no idea who she was just talking to, but it wasn't her Jess. Jen wondered if the two of them had truly grown apart after all the years of friendship. The two best friends from childhood were now both married and mothers themselves, and each living their own life. Jen also noticed how Jessica's personality on social media had changed and wondered where it all changed for her. It would be the events that transpired in the middle of August of 2019 where it would all begin to make sense for Jen. At around noon on Monday, August 12th, Jessica's friend Maria stepped out of the shower to see that she had three consecutive missed calls from Jessica. When Maria called back, Jessica was upset and told Maria that she had had enough of Justin's abuse and was ready to leave him and wanted to ask if Maria could come get her and take her away. Maria lived too far away to be able to do so that afternoon and be back home in time to pick up her children when they got out of school. So the two of them made plans to do so the following day after Maria would drop her kids off at school in the morning. It would be the last time any of Jessica's family or friends would hear from her. The following day, August 13th, Maria received no calls or texts from Jessica, and every attempt by Maria to reach out to her went unanswered. The day after that, August 14th at 9 p.m., Justin messaged Maria from Jessica's Facebook Messenger account, 
and the two had a series of back-and-forth messages with each other. The following are the exact messages between the two. It's just with you, Grace and I are worried. If so, that's fine. We just don't know where she is, and Grace can't handle stress like this right now. No, she's not. When was the last time you spoke to her? About noon today, and she left everything here. Keys, car, ID, money. What about her phone? Here, too. Nothing weird. Word, she's never done this. I have no idea. Checked everything and everyone I know. Okay, well, I'm sending the police over there. Okay, you're going to freak Grace out, but... If Jonathan came home from work and all my stuff was here, and the kids didn't know where I was, he would be talking to the police. I know how to file a missing persons report. Do you think I heard her or something? The police can't do anything until 24 hours. She's an adult. I'm checking hospitals and jails now. Called hospital in both jails and not at any of them. Call police and missing persons is 24 hours after last seen to file a report. I've got to be missing something. I'm about to go full out on social media and every other asset I had to find out if my wife is safe. I have a child throwing up and needs to know her mom's okay. Here is the missing persons report. If you know where she is and that she's okay, I would appreciate you telling me before all of the world knows our personal problems. This is really messing Grace up, not to mention other people, too. If she left because you're an asshole to her, I'm 100% supportive of her doing that. The problem I'm having is I'm the person she would call, and I haven't heard from her since Monday. So either some random person in this big, dangerous city you live in has taken my friend, or you lost your shit because she was trying to leave from my point of view. Because honestly, I can't even name one single other friend that she has left. It doesn't make sense that she would leave and not tell me something. You're right as always. It's all about you. Thanks for helping her and us in this. Don't even. If I hear anything from her, I'll be sure you know she's safe. For Grace's sake. Plenty human of you. Any word yet? I noticed some videos posted by her account Friday. I was trying to keep Grace's spirits up. I don't know that they posted. That's why I'm not fucking with Facebook. Maria, you have no idea what I've been doing here on the ground and with people in positions to help. I appreciate the posters and trust me when I tell you I have been nonstop. This is my whole life we are talking about. Whether you believe that is out of my control. That's good to know. Like who? What are their names so the police can coordinate with them to look for her? Do you think I'm not on the phone or in person with the police? Come on, Maria. You said you have people looking for her. Do you mean the police or friends of yours? I'm just not sure what people on the ground means. I'm trying to understand. Friends at the TV station here I graduated with, head of K-9, chief of fire investigation. I don't have time to type all of this at the moment. The head of central casting, it goes on. I went to school with Travers Mackle, investigative reporter for WDSU. I called him on his cell and he's returning my call ASAP. Good. Meg Ferris is another that I've left a message for. I am friends with the fucking district attorney of Orleans Parish. As you heard in the text, Justin told Maria that when he tried to file a report, he was told that he had to wait 24 hours in order to file a missing persons report. However, as Maria says herself in a recent episode of the podcast Crawlspace, when she called police herself, 
She was told that they never would have said that he had to wait 24 hours. Justin's account for Wednesday, August 14th, is that he last saw Jessica at home at noon when he laid down for a nap. He claimed that when he woke up at 3 p.m., Jessica wasn't home and he hadn't seen her since. But as you also heard in the text exchange, all of her personal belongings, her purse, ID, car keys, and cell phone were left at home. Maria got in contact with Jessica's sister, Audrey and Amanda, to inform them of the situation and they immediately got involved. Maria also took to Facebook and began posting about Jessica being missing and tagged the New Orleans Police Department in the posts. The women have been very vocal about how the police were not taking this case seriously at any point. In the episodes of Crawl Space with Audrey and Maria, it was mentioned that when police went to the home, Justin refused to answer it. And still to this day, he actually has never been questioned about Jessica. Justin was also very inactive in trying to search for Jessica, leaving all of the legwork to Audrey, Amanda, and Maria. Another week went by, and then on Thursday, August 22nd, the women had plans to come to New Orleans to meet with detectives. They arrived early prior to the meeting time when they decided to drive around Jessica's neighborhood, primarily to search out a possible location where they could organize a search party later. Audrey and Amanda were driving around along with their cousin Doug. They were approximately two and a half blocks from Jessica's home when Doug, who worked in a funeral home, noticed a smell he was all too familiar with and immediately said to stop the car. They were at a dead-end intersection of Kenilworth Street and Orleans Avenue, near some railroad tracks by the Interstate 610 underpass. They stepped out of the car, and Doug went to search on one side by a canal wall, while Audrey searched the other side near a wooded area. That was where she would find the body of her sister, Jessica, in an advanced stage of decomposition. She had a broken jaw, broken nose, a broken rib, and a broken vertebrae in her neck. Although the pathologist who performed the autopsy reported that these injuries occurred around the time of death, he never specified how they occurred. The coroner, Dwight McKenna, stopped short of declaring the case a homicide, officially listing the cause of death as undetermined. Law enforcement as a whole was not taking this case seriously at all. They quickly determined the case to be cold. Again, they had never even questioned Justin, or Justin's father, who shared ownership of the home where Jessica lived with Justin and Grace. The DNA that the police had was also mishandled, having not been sent to a lab, instead just sitting on a desk. The authorities had also done a very poor job at the initial scene where Jessica had been found. Seven months later, Jessica's ID and blanket were found just 15 yards from where her body was discovered. And Justin himself has shown no interest in finding out how Jessica died. In fact, he would pretend to be her on porn sites, trying to sell her underwear in an attempt to make money off of her, 
as well as setting up fake GoFundMe pages. Jessica's friends and family, as well as strangers following the case, would have the pages shut down as soon as word about them spread. And there were dis different aspects of Justin's life that were being exposed. Jessica had actually been his third wife, and he had a history of domestic abuse before. His second wife, who had been Jessica's friend, had taken out a restraining order in 2011 against him for domestic abuse. He also had been claiming to have been in the military, despite having no remnants left from it. He claimed that everything he had from his military days had been lost in Hurricane Katrina. It turns out that there is no record of him ever having been in the military. Audrey and Maria are trying every avenue they can to get someone to look at Justin for Jessica's case. They even attempted to get the ATF on him because he was selling firearms with a serial number scratched off on top of having a previous conviction for firearms violation. Jessica's friends and family are fighting every day for justice in her case. Autry has been very vocal on Twitter, which is how I found out about Jessica's case myself, and I will link her Twitter page in the episode notes. They also created a website, which is justiceforjessica.org, where they have shared every detail of the case at, that they know, including the screenshot of text messages that you heard in the episode, as well as links to the YouTube videos they did with Lord and Arts. You can also sign up for the mailing list on the page to stay updated in Jessica's case. Jessica's friends and family have been working tirelessly to get answers in her death. They deserve justice, but above all, Jessica herself deserves justice. Thank you everyone for listening to the episode this week. Again, if you want to learn more and follow Jessica's case, visit justiceforjessica.org and sign up for the mailing list. I would like to thank my friend Allison, who was the voice you heard reading the texts of Jessica and Maria, and she and I co-host a podcast together called Joey and Allison Mental Health Warriors, which is available wherever you are listening to Still Unknown. Episode 20 will be out next Tuesday, the 28th, which is the day the book Hell in the Heartland, Murder, Meth, and the Case of Two Missing Girls by Jack Smiller will be released in the U.S. And I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Jacks about the book and the case it focuses on. The two missing girls at the center of the book's story are Ashley Freeman and Laura Bible. And Unsolved Mysteries fans may remember their case being on the show, and fans of the ID show Disappeared may remember the episode as well. I had the opportunity to read an advanced copy of the book, and I highly recommend it. So be sure to listen next week for my interview with author Jax Miller. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a promo for another podcast called Reverie True Crime. And thank you for again for listening to Still Unknown. Stay safe, everyone. Page, and I'm the host of Reverie True Crime. Reverie means to daydream, but even daydreams can become nightmares. 
Come join me and get lost in horrific reverie about true crimes and eerie events. Reverie True Crime Podcast, available wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. Thank you.